Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the FortiGuard Labs Threat Intelligence Podcast. My name is Jonas, and once again, I'm joined by my partner in crime, Amar Lakani. Amar, how are you doing, buddy? Hello, my good friend. It's always good to have another week with you talking about threats and what's wrong in the world. Thanks a lot for, for joining again. And as last time, we will cover some topics from our threat intelligence brief, which we release on a weekly basis. And what stands out to me from last week, especially, is the amount of fileless malware which we see in the wild currently. For our listeners, can you quickly elaborate a bit? What is exactly a fileless malware? You know, I think, first of all, the term is used a little incorrectly when people say fileless malware, because there are always some artifacts that are that are left on files and on disk. And we can talk about that in a, in a second in a little more detail. But in general, what fileless malware normally is, is it's malware that's resident in memory. So it, the attack happens in memory. The payload, the actual malicious thing that makes something bad, bad is happening in memory. It's not happening in disk. Interesting. So it's not only more difficult when it comes to forensic, but also for AV detections to analyze stuff, which is ongoing since there's no traces left on, on disks. Well, let's talk about it from a forensic standpoint. First of all, if you ever are in a situation where you do have to do any type of forensics, it's very difficult to examine because... Jonas, as you know, what happens to memory when a computer is rebooted or, or turned off? It pretty much goes away. Everything you have in memory goes away. And that's the same thing that happens with fileless malware is that it goes away. Now, at the same time, attackers don't want to infect the computer again. If they've already have gone access to your system, they don't want to go for that whole process again because, once again, if they do, there's just an opportunity for them to get caught again. So uh, so at that time, because of, because of that, they are going to do some sort of persistence. And we can talk about that in a second. But from a standpoint, from what AV does, from antivirus or from other traditional security tools, what they do is they, they start looking at files and how files behave on disk. That's what they traditionally scan for. Yes, there are new next generation AVs and other tools that will scan for in-memory residents of payloads and, and uh, malicious software. But for the most part, AV traditionally has scanned for files on disk, and that's what's being caught. So when you don't have anything on disk, traditional AV sometimes has a much tougher time of uh, catching that. And then as a forensic specialist, you have a much tougher time of analyzing what happened. It's so funny. Sometimes I was talking to a buddy of mine and he was telling me, he's like, man, I'm learning about fileless malware. Can, can you send me a sample? We do that in uh, <laughs> we do, we do that with uh, security professionals all the time. We send each other samples. It's like, I can't, it's fileless. Look at the name. There's no sample for me to actually send you, at least in this case. Yeah, very interesting. And since everything runs in memory, and as you mentioned, if someone turns off the computer, the last thing what an attacker wants to happen is that he loses his connection. So it's quite critical that he pivots um, to somewhere and keep persistence on the system in case the system gets rebooted, so he still have access. Do you have any experience? Um, how does fileless malware how does fileless malware pivots once it runs in memory and keep persistence on a certain system? Yeah, we can talk about that. And it also gives us our first opportunity as network defenders to start catching the malware. So the first thing fileless malware does is it uses a technique called registry persistence. Uh, so it will add registry keys, usually runtime startup keys, to go ahead and start uh, the malware process again. 
Another thing fileless malware can do is it can spawn new services. So new services that are coming in to the system uh, will be started, and that can uh, also add uh, that can also add persistence. And lastly, not not nearly as use of a technique is you can have persistence over the network. That means a system has already compromised or is continuously compromising the victim that's on the same network. So you kind of have access to both both systems. Fileless malware may be in memory. But I think it's important to remember that it does create new artifacts that are already existing. It doesn't install new software. Many times it doesn't install new software. But there are times where it will create new services or new uh, registry keys or maybe even use PowerShell. I know we were talking a little earlier about PowerShell, how most fileless malware actually takes advantage of PowerShell and systems to create some sort of persistence. Yeah, that's a, it's a good point. The PowerShell topic, it's something which is by default installed on every Windows 7 machine and later versions. And based on that, there are also a lot of powerful tools available. We talked about Metasploit in the last podcast, but this week, uh, maybe something similar than Metasploit is PowerShell Empire, the, the whole hacking framework, which as far as I know, was actually stopped uh, developing since uh, last year. But still, it's it's such a powerful framework which leverages all the PowerShell commands. And once you have access to a system, you can leverage those scripts to to move laterally through the network, uh, execute scripts for a lot of post-explanation stuff out there. There are so many PowerShell scripts, so many PowerShell tools for attackers, for pen testers, for blue team defenders. So there's no shortage of tools. PowerShell is pretty difficult to stop if you're a defender when an attacker is using it correctly. First of all, in the you know, in the scheme of fileless malware, if it attacks you and you're logged in as an administrator on that box, you have full admin rights on PowerShell a lot of times. Even if you don't have full admin rights on PowerShell, PowerShell is still very powerful for an attacker to enumerate systems, to do reconnaissance, and possibly find more vulnerabilities in the system as well. Um, PowerShell is essential to Windows. You cannot just get rid of PowerShell. There's no way to do that. You break Windows, modern-day Windows, at least uh, to that regard. So PowerShell is absolutely needed, and that's what attackers are using. So like uh, many software out there, they get updated, they get more sophisticated, Um, which brings us to another topic. We have seen other types of malware, especially last week, uh, announced it in the, the TIB. We've seen a malware with API. Uh, why Why do you think attackers implement such features as APIs in, in malware nowadays? Well, we just started seeing this with a, a new new malware. It has a couple of different names. Uh, one, one of the names that I like for it is uh, Six Little Monkeys. Uh, but uh, it has a couple of different names. But we are seeing some sophisticated uh, malware that's coming out that has API access. You know, when you see malware that that comes out that's written with API access, it has to make you wonder a little bit because traditionally malware is pretty easy to write compared to like complicated pieces of software. And then most complicated pieces of software, most server client pieces of software, you'll see APIs. And APIs are traditionally used for control to add features or to have better access into the system, into the server system. So when I when I see malware with APIs, first of all, it makes me think, 
why would someone do that? And it's probably someone that already has uh, some sort of sophistication in programming. It it may be, it may be someone that, you know, is thinking outside the box because traditionally open source code that you're going to copy is not going to have that, that API. Um, This specific malware that you're talking about, uh, you know, it was targeting a diplomat. Uh, At least that's what some uh, news organizations are saying. So, uh, you know, we, don't know if that's true or not, but it makes me think uh, it may be coming from a more sophisticated source. Um, you know, with APIs, as you said, uh, Jonas, you have so much access on like updating your malware, on updating encryption schemes, on updating uh, where uh, logging is going without touching the network layer or without reinfecting the system with an updated piece of malware. That's a very good point about updating software. I remember back in the days, once software was installed, you never really expected to get new versions, especially from when we look back at smartphones. The software you get got back then is was the one which was running for a very long time. And nowadays, even if we see it in cars, even if software is installed, you kind of expect from the manufacturer to get software updates, new features, and Similar with with malware these days, I I feel it's they follow a very similar approach as legitimate software that they update their malware on a regular basis. They also do some beta testing in certain regions where security might be a lesser priority to figure out how good is the malware behaving, how can they improve it before they go live on on their main target. What do you think about that? Yeah, even a couple of years ago, we used to see attack groups on like the darknet selling software services saying like, you know, if this if our malware is caught, if AV starts detecting our malware, we'll come out with an update. So they sold software subscription services to malware. That was a few years ago. You don't see them that much of that anymore. Uh, now, a lot of times when you see malware being updated, it's usually new code. You usually can, in some cases, at least more sophisticated malware, you can update it in line, but it's usually like a shim on the software that's being updated, like a network shim or something to that 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 regard. But with the API, you can actually have full functionality into going into the code, into pulling out data, and also into updating pieces of that code. So like I said, it's a different way of doing things, whether it's more efficient or not, that remains to be seen, but it's definitely something that's seen more in commercial software or sophisticated software. It it honestly makes me think that the people that wrote this are probably software developers that do this for a living maybe and write other pieces of software and they decided to write malware. Yeah, fair points and uh, uh, thanks for the the insights. Um, I I saw a blog recently on our uh, threat intelligence uh, research uh, portal on the um, Fortinet website. And you talked about the 10-year anniversary of Stuxnet. I don't really want to cover the Stuxnet topic in general, but I would like to discover a bit more about the enumeration scanning techniques in general when it comes to air-gapped environments, OT environments, since also this week when I had a look at the IPS IPS hits on our systems worldwide and our sensors have seen a lot of scanners out there. We have seen mass scanners. We have seen C-Grab uh, and maps all over the place. And it, the, the spikes were quite huge these days. So why is enumeration so important? And how does it differentiate between legitimate bus- between normal businesses and air-gapped environments and OT environments? Well, first of all, like if you show me a true air-gapped environment, I will give you a dollar, all right? Because I, I've never seen a true air-gapped environment. I have a lot of 
people that say they have air-gapped environments, and I have a lot of people that truly believe that. And then I ask them, well, how do you do updates? And they're like, well, we use a USB stick. Well, well, that's exactly what happened with Stuxnet. Uh, your nuclear power plants are not on the internet. No matter what country you are, no matter how, uh, you know, how much lack of training you have, you're not going to put a nuclear power plant on the internet. You do have that error gap. And that's what happened with Stuxnet is supposedly it was uh, for USB sticks and other measures as well. There's been a lot of talk about that. But you talk in general about, you know, having things error gapped or not. I think what we have to do is corporations, and we're starting to discover this with enterprise organizations when they're designing security is, it's not really about being error gapped as much as, uh, as much as it is about being segmented. And I think that's very important. That does allow the slowdown of enumeration or reconnaissance when attacks happen. It does allow you to contain attacks to certain areas of your network, if done right. Of course, I've also seen segmentation where people segment networks through routers and there's routing available through all segments. And it doesn't really matter if, you, if you're going from network to network and not checking anything on the application layer or doing anything uh, via security. Good, good point, Samar. I think enumeration and especially scanning is something which sometimes gets to taken a little bit on the light shoulder and isn't taken serious enough because in, in from my experience it's when I, when I do some pen testing in, on my systems it's what takes me most of the time because I, I would I would like to know as much as possible about every single detail from my environment and the better I know my environment the more the, the faster and more efficient I'll be with my attacks afterwards. So I think the enumeration part is not only the, the scanning part, but also getting as much information about your targets. And this is something which should not be taken lightly and needs to be protected very well enough because we don't want to give too much information out there. That is something I would I will definitely agree with you on. Uh, you know, I, I teach uh, pen testing uh, to uh, students, uh, like high school students and church students a lot of times. And the, every time I teach students uh, pen testing, everyone wants to crack a box and get shell access. They're really happy to do that. And I always tell them that's maybe the fun part, but the most important part is reconnaissance and enumeration. That's the part you're going to spend a lot of time on. And that is a part that you need to get really good at. Good at. Uh, I remember even when I was doing professional pen testing as, as a career, uh, it, you know, it took me a little bit to find out what my next step was going to be. I was like, okay, I'm sitting down at a box. I know I need to scan. First of all, there is a little bit of a technique and science on how you're going to scan because you, you just, it's not going to be like in the lab, right? You're not going to want to, you don't want to light up everyone's boxes and uh, alert them to your presence that you're going to scan. But once you're done after that, what's the next step? How do you zero in on what you're going to target? And where are you going to actually get the most bang for your buck? Because you may have several vulnerabilities or potential vulnerabilities that are available, but what's going to give you the most access to move laterally and get information on the system? Yeah, I completely agree. It's like a physical burglar. He doesn't just run to a certain house and tries to open the main door when he can figure out that the balcony door is usually open at 4 p.m. So it, it might be worth it to do a lot of reconnaissance. And we always need to keep that in mind as, as from the good guy's perspective that whatever we provide from an information point of view to the public, it can be something which might be exploited in the future. So Amar, again, uh, I would like to say thanks a lot for, for joining me this week for this podcast and talking about the last two TIBs. And hopefully we will see us 
again soon in, in the near future to cover more topics. Hey, it's always good talking about security threats with you, my friend. Thanks a lot. All right, guys. Thanks a lot for listening today. And we are out.